Diamond K Takwaye now presents Flame in the Mist Part 2 by Renea Dia. Welcome back to MNK Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished Flame in the Mist by Renee Adia. Yeah, and we finished the whole book. Which means we're halfway through because it's another duology. I know. I actually, I like it when one story kind of finishes and another story is introduced. And I don't necessarily feel like enough stuff was resolved I wanted to at least know who had killed her or tried to kill her or like I felt like I needed a little bit more information to feel like this could have been a book like a whole story on its own sort of like I guess she was reunited with her brother in that sense and she like became a black like some stuff definitely happened but I don't know that I would say it like was a complete book necessarily on its own like you need the second one but not just it left on a cliffhanger it like isn't finished. I 100% agree and that's usually rare because I think usually in in duologies or in series they don't often have a second book planned or like you're not sure if it'll get picked up so I think a lot of authors try and keep the book a standalone story just in case like the second one doesn't pan out so I thought that was kind of interesting that like you said like we don't get a resolution here and we do learn some interesting things but it's not enough to be a full story. I would be, um, again, this is why I wait for all, the reason one of our rules is all the books have to come out is because I literally like refuse to read anything if I can't finish the series, if I get really into it. But um, <laughs> maybe that's not the only reason, but that's definitely how I operate. And I'd be so frustrated if I had to wait like a year to find out what happens. Oh my gosh, I know. But luckily we don't because we have the book yeah. right now. It came out in like a couple weeks ago, so it's pretty recent. Yeah, when we picked this book, I it like wasn't out yet like I pre-ordered it on Amazon even though we were starting the series I was like oh my god I hope we we can't get too far ahead this time (laughs) unfortunately I looked at her book tour and Renee Dia is not coming to Atlanta or Chicago I know what again we strike out I think we need to move to New York or where are some other good cities I feel like Chicago should be good I randomly feel like Atlanta isn't on any of the book lists that I've looked like I feel like I had more luck in Chicago than I have in Atlanta or maybe I'm just looking at the wrong things but I feel like Atlanta's a big enough city it should be more of a literary city Chicago's a pretty big city and the last two books we've read uh, authors have not come there on their book tour yeah we might have to road trip or something <gasps> oh that'd be so <laughs> can we get like a special car with like a funny bumper sticker on it we can just tie books from the back of the car. How about that? Well, that sounds dangerous to the books, Marissa. <laughs> Actually, we did that to um, my high school teacher when he got married. We um, we put the books in book jackets. Like, we put them in plastic to protect them, but we strung all of these classic books from the back of his car. <laughs> and oh we put goodness. a sign that says, just married. That's awesome. But we did protect the books, so don't worry. Okay. I was a little bit nervous, but all right. I actually, I took my book to the beach last week and was really nervous about actually reading on the beach because it was so sandy. I was like, I don't want to get it wet and oh sandy. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but, but I also wanted to read at the beach, so. That's a dilemma right there. I pulled it off. <laughs> okay, okay, so do we want to talk about the ending of this book? Yeah. Okay, so. Or we can talk about the beginning of the second half. And <laughs> Well, first I'd like to say, 
your prediction was right because the very first chapter we read, we had our first kind of run in between Mariko with her Black Clan group and her brother. Yeah. They all convene at Hanami, the tea house. And I was like really confused during that whole scene about where everyone was standing and what was happening. (laughs) Again, I think I read it like five times before I could understand it. I don't know what it is sometimes about this book. I'm just like not following it correctly or like maybe I'm reading too fast. But same thing. I had to read it like a bunch of times to understand Because I don't feel like it's the writing. Like sometimes I'll be like, oh, the writing's confusing or something. Like I feel like it all makes sense. But then I like stop and I'm like, wait, what just happened? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was a lot of action, which is actually kind of cool. So there was, you know, that whole scene where Ranmaru attacks and tries to kill Raiden and then Okami goes after Kenshin, and Mariko throws her throwing star at Okami and hits him. Um, she hits him in the face with a lantern at a certain point. <laughs> there was definitely a lot going on. Yeah. And she's like trying to save her brother, but mm-hmm. keep up her cover and not have him see her. And yeah, like even just her role alone was so confusing. But so part of my question that I still don't know if I have a good answer to is were they at the tea house? to find the prince because part of me thought at first I thought no but then someone I think maybe it was her brother or something was saying it seemed like they knew we were coming or maybe that was just them being paranoid or whatever but I didn't think they expected to see the princes there okay but they just took advantage of the opportunity because they are trying to get their revenge or whatever like it just seemed like a weird I sort of was like, why didn't they just hide? Like, why would you attack the crown prince if you weren't planning to attack the crown? Like, it just seemed ill thought out. (laughs) Well, I wonder if there's... So I really liked meeting Yumi. um, I did too. I I loved whenever they first go to the tea house and Mariko's kind of being a little, not judgmental, but she's just, she judges it by its cover. And she's like, oh, these women here are just here for the entertainment of men. And then she like reevaluates her thoughts when she eventually meets Yumi and she's she's impressed by her because she realizes that you know she does have this grace and this skill and and they carry themselves very proudly and not um in subservience and and also like these women at the tea house they have access to information which is power and mm-hmm. so I, I really liked yeah. um Mariko changing her judgment after she spent some time with Yumi to kind of reevaluate the situation and be like, oh, these women are actually really powerful because they have access to very powerful men and can learn learn all their secrets. Yep. No, and I think this book in general, like even how Mariko kind of grows and develops as a character, it's not saying, even though she's disguising herself as a boy at the beginning, it's never really been like, oh, you have to have this learn how to fight like a boy and have the strength of a boy and blah, blah, blah. It really is kind of her being able to explore who she truly is and use her cunning and wit and see and recognize other women's strengths and how they're able to use them to create their own kind of full life, even though society tells them they have to, you know, obey their fathers or whatever. And that's why I like at the end, I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but there's a point where she has to go back and she's like, I'm going to go as a girl. I'm not going to go as a boy anymore. And even when she... And then she's welcomed, which is great because we weren't sure the way things had been left beforehand. Basically, her life had been threatened if she ever came anywhere near the Black Clan again. But they welcome mm-hmm. her and like finish her initiation, basically. And of course, now they all know she's a girl because she came dressed as a girl and 
you know, shared her identity and all this stuff. But even when she kind of goes back to her robes, didn't they say she like kept a feminine touch or something? Yeah. Like she, she's still, I think she's doing a better job of, um, not a better job, but she's really embracing who she is, all the different facets of who she is right now. Yes. I really thought it was funny when um, she does the gender reveal, not gender reveal party, but like <laughs> when Okami discovers that she's actually a girl because it reminded me so much of that one scene in Mulan when she's like in the, riv- in the river swimming and I like know. all the men run by. Yeah. Like that exact scene happens in this book and I was just laughing so hard. <laughs> I know, I was waiting for a horse to help. I still don't know how she got out of the <laughs> tub. I was waiting for the dragon voiced by Eddie Murphy. (laughs) Well, okay, that was another thing that I thought like was interesting because as soon as he realizes she's actually a woman, they like make out a lot. Yeah, which that was a little, was that strange to you? That was strange to me. It was strange to me because even though we saw him kind of deal with his feelings for her you weren't really clear that he had some attraction to her to start he had more like suspicion and all this other stuff and then all of a sudden he realizes she's a girl and he's like okay I'll kiss you like that was a little bit I was like wait wait." I mean I guess that the only thing that I could think of which I actually do like is that he was kind of falling in love with her before he knew she was a girl and the her gender didn't matter that's like what I want to believe kind of um well, I do too, except I feel like, again, they didn't paint enough of that attraction up front. Exactly. Because even when we saw from his point of view, then after they have that moment, you, we see more things from his point of view, and he kind of alludes to the fact that he had been attracted and intrigued by her, and I agree, I like that side of it, but I sort of, like, in the moment when that was happening, I was sort of like, wait, what just happened? He, like, realized she's a girl, and now and he's I was like, like, oh, I can oh, okay. kiss you now? That doesn't feel right. <laughs> yeah. I almost wish yeah. that he had, like been attracted to her before he found out she was a girl like um explicitly and then in the end it was just like I fell in love with a person male or female doesn't matter I wish that I wish that's how it played out and I think it would have been better if it had honestly yeah and again because we saw so many things from his point of view it could have even been something small even him like being attracted but being like suspicious of her because he thinks she's there to infiltrate the camp whatever you know I mean like it could have still been like a complicated thing but in the moment that's how it plays I, out yeah, I didn't it plays out as him just being suspicious and like very curious about her mm-hmm. but I wish it would have been like he was kind of like allured by her which maybe he was in a little yeah in, in I, like way, I think he was I just wish it had been more uh more explicit, more explicit. or that it had been I don't know like it just it felt like very much like oh I, now I found out you're a girl now I'm gonna make out with you even though yeah yeah but besides that particular moment, I'm feeling good about their relationship for the most part and how they're both kind of trying to figure out what is going on. Well, I, the thing that I didn't like was I didn't like whenever um, – so he gets angry at her, right, because there's that scene where they go to rob the Hattori family. They go to rob her father, essentially, mm-hmm. and Ren gets shot. And, um, and he basically says, like, you could have warned us. And he gets kind of angry. And then all of a sudden, in, and that's when, like, she goes back to Yumi and Mariko's kind of struggling with the fact that she's feeling sympathy for the Black Clan. And Yumi's like, well, if you think that all the Clan does is kill, then you don't deserve to know them, which I liked. But then mm-hmm. she goes back and all of a sudden he's just, he likes her again. And they just, like, start kissing again. And I was yeah. just like, that no, was way too quick of a resolution because he was, like, really angry with her at first. And then she comes back and he's just like, never mind, you're one of us, we'll initiate you, let's make out. 
Although, wasn't he, didn't he, like, not talk to her at first besides the, yeah. like, actual ceremony? I'm. It's kind of, like, interesting, though, like, what the leader of the clan, like, did he really go back and warn them? And then was the other guy, like, oh, I knew that. I mean, like, I'm kind of curious what everyone mm-hmm. else knows and thought about it besides Same those here. two characters. Um, and I agree, because with all that, they still haven't had a lot of conversations <laughs> that they need to be having. So, yeah, that need, at some point, they'll need to stop lying to each other well, we do know that talk um, about stuff <laughs> Ramaru knew that she was a girl before yeah because he was the one who warned her created that monster in the woods the shadow basically. animal yeah yeah and then so is the queen the one who does the fox so are there I two shadow so. animals I think so okay. yeah that was that was confusing for me too because there were all these like there was this magic going on which you know I'm not crazy about there being a magical element in these books and then there was like I think it was the um Either the queen or the mistress was doing the fox, and I think oh, yeah, Ranmaru mm-hmm. is the other animal. But I'm just not sure. I'm not quite sure what's going on with all that. Yeah, like the rules and why and how and what. Like it's very confusing. Like even with um, Okami, it's like we see he suffers when he uses his magic, but we don't. And he's mentioned some kind of like barter or exchange or like how he gained this ability a little right. bit. But we still don't really know enough about why or how. And he can fly, apparently. Yeah. Or he can, like, turn into smoke. I don't know. I didn't yeah. like that. It just, it doesn't need it. It's it's an interesting enough story without all this magic. Like, mm-hmm. I really wish she hadn't done it. She hadn't included it. But, oh well. So speaking of the Empress versus the Mistress, what do you think about the Emperor being poisoned? Oof. Well, that was surprising and unexpected. Um, yeah. I, I'm just... I'm a little confused about where everyone's loyalties lie because a little, <laughs> a lot. Because <laughs> we see we see the empress poisoning the emperor, but then we also see Kanako, the mistress, meeting with um, Nobutada, the samurai who was um, leading Mariko's entourage at the beginning, and we find out that he's actually still alive and is working with Kanako, and she wants a way to control um, the leader of the Black Clan. And now she has Amaya, who's um, alive. She survived the fire in the granary. And she wants to, like, bargain with Kenshin for him. And I know that I know that Kaneko and the Empress are on opposite sides. Like, they're enemies. That's been established. So I'm just like, what is Kaneko's endgame and what is the Empress's endgame? And I don't, I don't really understand which side they're on. Yeah, and what's going on with their two sons and what... Yeah. Yeah. And are the sons still friends or are they pretending to be friends? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I agree. I'm very confused. And I think um, I am kind of excited to see a change of scenery in the next book and how yeah. like I kind of feel like the emperor and his life has been while we've seen little glimpses of it has sort of felt removed from the story. And I'm excited to see that kind of directly interact more with the characters that yeah. we know. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to see more of Kaneko and um, the Empress because it's what's great is that we start out in this book with a woman who is essentially being sold into marriage. Yep. Not great. <laughs> and not our bigot. And not now, a great thing. <laughs> and now it ends with, you know, she's very strong now and the people who are in power who are men are kind of on the decline like the emperor now is dead and his mistress and his wife are running the show yeah and i also okay again just like random questions why did the emperor invite her 
was he like being sincere or was he tricked into inviting because it sounded like he had basically ignored the empress or you know like been uninterested in a relationship for a long time Mm -hmm. and then he invited her to his mistress's spot and she took advantage of it to poison him but like what was his I don't know I'm even I even like wonder if there was more at play there I'm not sure because I think I don't know if he actually wanted to mend things between him and his wife um, or maybe he just was having a moment of regret where he kind of was upset about the things that he did in his past, like killing his two best friends. Um, and he wanted his sons to be better. Um, so I wasn't sure if it was just like a moment of sadness for him where he was like trying to right some yeah. of his wrongs and was trying to do that by starting with his wife. Yeah, and I think your point about the sons, though, I think you're right, because he talked about his son. They both were, I think they're both trying to do right by their son, even if their relationship is strained. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. I really don't know. Yeah, yeah, things just jump around a lot. Okay, what, what else do we need to... Well, we didn't talk about the big thing, the big reveal at the end. Oh, that um, the brothers are, or not brothers, the... Okami and Ramaru are really switched. Yeah. So Okami is actually the son of... Takeda Shinjin, not Ramaru, and Ramaru is Masano Sunioki, yeah. which totally makes sense because the entire time I was reading this book, I was like, why is the leader of the Black Clan playing such an insignificant part in this book? And it was like all about Okami, 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 and then when they switched and they revealed that Okami is actually the leader of the Black Clan and he was the son who saw his father commit seppuku, like... That made so much more sense. Yeah, that was my bigger my bigger question even then the leader was, why did we see that scene at the beginning about a secondary character? Right, right. It didn't make any sense. So I'm glad that, that straightened out. <laughs> but, it, but it also brings up so many more, like I understand that, like I'm kind of curious why, I want to know more about their relationship still. I get that Ron Maru felt a need to make up for what his father had done and like that's part of their mm-hmm. devotion to each other, but but it also seemed like Okami wasn't willing to take on the leadership role, or at least not fully. Like, I don't think it was just like, oh, let's keep your identity hidden. It sort of felt like mm-hmm. multiple things. And so I'm kind of curious what all, like, if he really did get distracted from his revenge plan for a little bit, or like, if this was all part of a greater plan from the beginning, or if this was sort of ebb and flow and things changing and whatnot. Yeah. Well, there's the part in the book that I actually highlighted. I never do that when I read on Kindle, but I highlighted this one because it actually made a little bit more sense as to why he let Ranmaru assume his identity. Because, I mean, that was a dangerous identity to assume, right? He was like the son of a disgraced samurai. Um, So it said he let Sunioki assume his identity because he'd wished for his friend to suffer. Hmm. And he was like, they'd barely been eight years old when their fathers had died. Um, if Asano Naga- Naganori had stayed firm in his commitment to support Takeda Shinjin, if he had not succumbed to his fear, perhaps it, w- it would not be Okami riding in a prison wagon to meet his death. What kind of person punished his best friend for his father's crimes? And so I was like, he's, he's punishing Ranmaru a little bit because he resents him a little bit for the part he played in his father's death. That's fair. I don't even remember that, so glad you highlighted it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why there's two of us. <laughs> Thank God. You catch things I don't, I catch things you don't. Uh, I wonder what happened if we added a third person, if all of a sudden these books would start to make a complete sense or... 
We would have no questions ever. <laughs> Everything would make perfect sense. Yeah, but that is a big reveal, and I am interested to see it play out and to see how the Black Clan continues to be a part of the story if what I'm assuming right now is it is moving with our two leads to the Imperial City. Yeah. So I wonder if the Black Clan comes to try and help their buddies or if they sort of drop off and it becomes just more focused on what's going on at court or whatever so well I liked um too that we learn a little bit more about the black clan and how they actually are helping families and kind of redistributing wealth because that was like a big moment when Mariko learns that or Mariko learns the opinion of Okami regarding her father and she always thought her father was like a fine man but then he's talking about how he's you know a really cruel lord and he's essentially taking more than he should from the people who work his land and that was like kind of a a bad moment for her where she realized her father really wasn't as good a person as she thought he was and it was kind of it was nice seeing the black clan helping akira and his family even though that didn't end well but um i thought it was it was interesting because she, because the entire time Mariko is very conflicted about her feelings for Okami because she's like, he's the leader. She thinks he's the leader of the Black Clan. He, th- she thinks all they do is kill and um, rob and commit crimes. And so I think it's nice that she's slowly starting to learn that they do a lot more. And it's just a matter of perspective, right? They're redistributing wealth. They're, it's kind of like Robin Hood. They're not stealing from innocent people, really. Yeah. The other thing I liked about that is one of her traits so far has been, you know, how observant she is. Both she's acknowledged that and we've seen it at play. And I kind of liked how even though that's one of her traits, she's not the best at it. Like all of a sudden she's reflecting back on her time and she's like, you know, I didn't notice or I didn't really acknowledge that the people working the fields weren't happy and, you know, that this other stuff was going on. And even admitting as smart and clever as she is, she, you know, the reason the comment about her being useless stung was because it was true and just I think Mm -hmm. she's really become more self-aware and grown a lot oh absolutely and and yeah to your point it's not clear who's good like no one's clearly or 100% good or 100% bad she still loves her family but they're not like her brother killed all those people and I don't think Kenshin did that okay yeah well right now she thinks he did yeah that's true that's true I I think something happened with the magic and the fox and the and the shadow animals and yeah, I don't think he did that because he wakes up and he's so confused about like who slaughtered Akira and his family. Um, so I don't yeah. think that was him. But or or if it was him, I do agree that there's some additional layer of manipulation or yeah. something with magic involved. But but you do see that scene with um when the soldiers attack the her father's granary with Ren. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And when he tells. His son, he, he tells Kenshin, her father tells Kenshin to go rescue the soldiers. And um, Amaya is like, oh, yeah. no, there are servants in there too. Like, we can save the servants. And they're torn. And, and she was like, help me save this life. Like, this is a, the life of a servant, but it's still an important life. And he helps her save that one. But then there's children left in the granary. And she um, goes back in. And he won't go with her. And and oh, I just hate when there's that. She gives him that look and she's just so disgusted that he won't help her save these um, these children of the servants. And then it, it collapses. The whole granary just collapses. Yeah. And then when her father, when Mariko's father is like, oh, we'll give her, we'll give Amaya's father like some gold to 
make up if for the, the loss of his is good. Yeah, to yeah. make up for the loss of his daughter and and it's just a moment where you're where you can you're con, it's confirmed how awful her father really is. You know, like it's one thing to hear Okami say, "Oh, he's robbing the peasants," but then actually see that happen and see how how unfeeling he is and how much he doesn't care about the the lives of his workers. Um I thought that was a good scene to kind of reinforce the truth behind Okami's statements. Yeah. Well, but I still think, not that any of that is good, but given the time and place, to some extent, there there probably was a higher value placed on samurai lives, not that there should have been. But like, I don't think he's like mm-hmm. purely evil either. I think he's not as good as she always thought he was, but that doesn't mean he's necessarily like a bad, you know, like even her just being like, he's still my family. I still want to protect him or That's same with true. her brother. Like I, and I like that part of it, but I, but I agree. We're definitely seeing the dark sides of some of these characters mm-hmm. and realizing just because they're family or just because, and we already kind of knew cause he already sold his daughter to help his family grow. But again, yeah. that's sort of part of the norm. That was part of life back then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, I mean, to us, it would seem very cruel, but to them, that Unexpected, was a very standard yeah. thing to do mm-hmm. to to increase your the wealth of your family. Yeah. So, I mean... Good point. Yeah. But I, I mean, I agree. I, I'm not saying anything he's doing is good or right or anything like that. So. <laughs> so did you do any research this week? I did some random research. So you know how we were talking about oh, how much we loved uh, stories where women disguise themselves as men? Yes. I looked into historical women who pretended to be men because of gender equality <laughs> issues. Katie, I researched the same thing. Did you? Oh, yes. no. Okay. Well, we can alternate stories or something. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. Wait. Okay. This is only like the third time you've done this, though, right? Yeah. Wait. I looked up something else, too. I can I can talk about another thing. I looked up... Have you heard about... So, Empress Machiko is the Empress Consort of Japan right now. Oh. Um. Do you know much about her? No. Okay, so she's the first commoner to marry into the Japanese imperial family. Oh, wow. And I don't even know how I ended up on her either. I Some of my research went sideways, surprisingly. Um, <laughs> but I just, I like started reading about her and I thought she was really interesting and I really don't know that much about the Japanese kind of royal family situation. Me so. either. So she's the empress of Japan right now? Yes. Okay. Um, and she was born in 1934, but she, I was going to say she just became empress. She became empress in 1989, but I'm like, that's in my life. For some reason, I feel like that wasn't that long ago, but I just remembered how old I am. Um, but, uh, yeah, kind of one of the more interesting things is really this idea that she was the first commoner. And when she married her husband, the emperor, Mm -hmm. it was right around when the queen of England was being, uh, became queen what's that called ordained coronated or coronated yeah, that's the, the coronation um the coronation of the queen and this was kind of a similar time for japan it was like oh they were using the media and kind of television and stuff to really interact with the world at a different scale mm-hmm. and interact with their people at a different scale and so she's kind of really a sign of the modernization of the japanese royal family and her mother-in-law was empress before her was like super against the marriage and like made her really depressed and just like never approved of her as good enough for her son I think in part because she wasn't from a royal family is um, part of it but they met playing tennis no way they they were on 
opposite sides of the tennis court in a doubles match, and she won, I think. Good for her. And yeah, so it was called The Romance of the Tennis Court, and it was sort of this fairy tale in Japan. So even though, so she's considered a commoner, but she came from a really wealthy family, but it wasn't it wasn't like anyway, royal okay. court nobility. So it was still sort of this idea. And she did a lot of other first things. So she was the first empress to breastfeed her children Whoa, and okay. kind of took a more involved approach to motherhood because a lot of times in royal families in general, I think there's that stuff's kind of outsourced yeah. to a team or a nanny. So yeah. yeah, not that she didn't have help, but um, she was kind of taking some strides in that in that world that kind of reminds me of princess diana a little bit not to compare it to a western figure but she did that as well she was like a very involved mother and like was very protective of her kids that's i mean i think that's great i'm yeah like kind of sad that both of these examples are so recent <laughs> and that these are like oh look at these great strides for motherhood but but it's it's a good thing to be doing so they met playing tennis i love that i want to know all about their courtship Yes, I don't. Oh, I do know um, her husband (laughs) talked about basically it sounds like he proposed to her multiple times and she kept turning him down until he convinced her. I kind of don't blame her. That's a lot to take on marrying into a royal family. Yeah. Okay, here's what he said. On proposing to the empress, the emperor said, we spoke over the telephone many times before the empress finally accepted. I would not say it was anything as simple as a one-line proposal. During our many (laughs) telephone conversations, I told her in order for me to carry out my duties as crown prince, I really needed someone who could understand the meaning and significance of those duties and would support me. I am truly happy that she accepted. So, I mean, they do kind of sound, again, like one of these just kind of, and I'm sure some of it's romanticized and painted, you know, and they definitely had their struggles and whatnot, but um, I can imagine being in Japan and being a regular person and kind of seeing the story play out and Mm -hmm. really identifying with it, so. Oh my gosh, yeah. Because it's kind of like, um, I don't know, it's, I think it's very helpful to have someone marry into the family, into the royal family, who is a little bit more... Well, I guess if she came from a very wealthy family, it's not like she identified probably a lot with the people, but... But even just mixing up the gene pool, too, is always good. We've read about some of the... I mean, not that I know about Japan in particular, but it's just... It's good to mix things up a little bit. Agreed. Um, Yeah, here's what they said. So the royal wedding was a major television event in Japan, and it was around the time of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, and the ceremony still took place behind closed doors, but the wedding procession was watched by 15 million people which is the largest television audience in Japan up to that point. Um, and they had only had television for six years in Japan. Wow. Yeah, that's, so, what, that's what is so amazing because, I mean, it was a while yeah. ago. When you, like, it seems like it wasn't that long ago in some ways, but then you're like, wait, like, technology has changed. There's no live streaming that. <laughs> and it, that makes it crazy to think about how far we've come. Technology has changed and life has changed in someone's lifetime. But, um, yeah, so a lot of people bought television specifically for the purpose of Whoa. watching this. To watch the royal wedding. I mean, I would have done that. I got up at 5 a.m. to watch the royal, the English royal wedding yeah. this year. So a year before the wedding, there were a million television sets in Japan. And within a few months of the wedding, there were 3 million television sets. Oh, my god. So isn't that kind of crazy? Yeah, that's a, that is a really interesting statistic. That it was all because of a wedding that drove that. And I'm sure it's a lot of things. Like, I, I'm guessing, too, if t- television was becoming a thing, it would have sure. grown anyways. But I'm sure that this... Like, the fact that it's so tied to this event is also... Well, that's like the... Um, my mom says she really remembers watching The Wizard of Oz on a color TV for the first time. And her uncle bought a color TV and there was um, a televised The Wizard of Oz with Judy Garland. 
and she said the moment when it goes from black and white, like grayscale, to color on the TV, she said she will never, ever forget it because it was so amazing. And she was a little girl, but she That's just so cool. She was like, yeah. I will never forget that moment because it was so cool to see it. And of course, it was like the perfect show to have on TV to um, watch on a color TV. Yeah, it's like still makes sense that it's black and white and then color, yeah. you know, but um, I think that's so funny because I like remember as a kid being like, why is this movie have no color? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like spoiled in the next generation and grew up with t- color TV the whole time. <laughs> this is nonsense. What do they think they're doing with this? This won't hold my attention. Uh, <laughs> that is so, so interesting. Anyways, I didn't do a ton of deep research on her because I went into a bunch of these stories about um, these women who disguise themselves as men. But can I just talk about one of my favorite ones and then you can talk Absolutely. about it. So one of my favorites was marina the monk did you read about that one i read about it but i didn't take notes on her okay so she her mom died when she was young i think she eventually became a catholic saint so saint marina but i could be wrong if she was actually sainted or not probably would have been a good fact to verify but i didn't um so she her mother died when she was young and she and her father were very close and led a really devout life and her dad wanted to retire in this monastery after he you know, married off his daughter. Mm. It sounds terrible, but okay. But when she heard that that was the plan, she was basically like, why do you want to save your own soul and destroy mine? That was her response. And he was like, well, you're a woman. I don't know what to do with you. So she renounced women's clothing, shaved her head, and basically went with her father to live as a monk. He was like really, he admired her determination and all Mm -hmm. this stuff. And so he like went along with it and she went under the name Marinos. But her father ended up dying 10 years later or something like that. And she continued to stay in the monastery pretending that she was a male. And one day she was sent to do some business somewhere. And her and three other monks had to stop for a night at the end. At an end. And a soldier fell in love with the innkeeper's daughter, seduced her, and she became pregnant and blamed Father Marinos. So she accused him by name. (laughs) That's not going to work. Yeah. But so like basically the innkeeper's dad went to the monastery and was like, you know, what's going on? And after she gave birth, um, the head of the monastery called in Marina and was like extremely, the abbot or whatever, was extremely Mm -hmm. frustrated. And she vaguely confessed to being a sinful person and asking for forgiveness. So she didn't say like, I did this particular thing, but you know, so he assumed she had done it. Um, so oh, they kicked no. her out of the monastery, what? and when the, she wait, she had, she would have admitted to doing that rather than admit she was female. Well, so I think it was more of a religious thing. She admitted to being a sinful person. She didn't say okay. I slept with this girl. She like never lied about it, but she, you know, asked for forget. So I think she might have even felt maybe her sin was lying about who she was. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but they assumed that this was her admitting to the crime and forced her to leave the monastery. And when the girl gave birth, the innkeeper brought the child and gave it to Marina. So she, like, (laughs) took care of this kid outside the monastery for 10 years. And then the monks were like, you know, we feel bad. We should let her come back. But they couldn't just let her come back. She had to have heavy penalties. So she was forced to do hard labor but was welcomed back. And she died at age 40. And the abbot... So young. Yeah, but also back in, when was this? It it was young, but it wasn't like crazy young for the time, probably. Um, 
At age 40, she became ill and died, and the abbot ordered that her body be cleaned and her clothes changed mm-hmm. and all this stuff for the funeral. And at this point, the monks did discover that she was a woman, and they became really stressed out and told the abbot, and they all felt, like, terrible for the wrongs they had yeah, committed. because they blamed her for that, kicked her out of the monastery. Yeah, and the abbot called the innkeeper and told him and so like everyone's like feeling really terrible about this and then some miracles were performed which is why i think she became a saint so like during the funeral one of the monks who had been blind received sight supposedly at her funeral and a couple other things like that which is why i think she became a saint that's the least they can do (laughs) but i was just like reading like i can you imagine not only pretending to be a man but like in order to live a live at a monastery and then while you're there being accused of something you literally you couldn't have done cannot do. yeah and oh god that poor and woman. then and, and then being kicked out of the monastery where you wanted to live raising some other kid who's not even yours <laughs> and like i don't just like all of this stuff i was just like wow that's a crazy story <laughs> yeah but anyways tell me some of those stories you read well okay so i was I wanted to make a distinction because I was reading a lot of stories where it seems like the women were transgendered men who felt more comfortable living as men. And I wanted to draw a distinction because the ones that I researched, these are women who were born women who identify as a woman and who dressed up like men to accomplish a specific task. So I wanted to like make that distinction. That's so fair. I yep. researched um, three women one from the Revolutionary War, one from the Civil War, and one from World War One, who all dressed up as soldiers to fight. Mm-hmm. So the first one, her she's an English woman. Her name was Hannah Snell. She was born in Worcester, England on April 23rd, 1723. And this is interesting. So in 1740, she moved to London and married a man named James Soames. Soames? And then she became pregnant with his child, and then he abandoned her while she was pregnant. Oh, Yeah. Especially in those times, that's like, yeah. Yeah, like, what an idiot. I mean, it's never good, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just to clarify. Um, so he abandoned her when she was pregnant, and then she gave birth to a daughter who then died a year later. Mm. So what she did was she took a suit from her brother-in-law, and she used his name... And she went off in search of her husband. She was like, I'm going to find this guy, where he, where he went, what he's doing. Yeah, enough of this. Like, yeah. I'm going to go find this bastard. So she later learned that her husband had been executed for murder. Oh, my goodness. And... Does that mean it's good he left them, maybe? I guess. <laughs> Dodged a bullet, yeah, possibly? Could, literally. Um... So she decided that she was just going to keep assuming her brother-in-law's identity, and she ended up serving in the Royal Marines for four years in the 18th century. Um, She was sent on a bunch of expeditions. She also fought in a bunch of battles. She was wounded 11 times in the legs, and then she was also shot in her groin and somehow avoided detection. People still didn't know she was a woman? Yeah, which is like, how does that work? Or does that mean, like, possibly, like, a female nurse helped her and was oh, like, oh, I'll oh. keep your secret or something? Or do we know anything about it? Let me see. Oh, okay. So for the groin shot, <laughs> the groin shot she asked a local woman to take out the bullet. Okay. Okay, that makes more sense. Because otherwise, I'm like, you, you can't just be like, hey, don't look under that blanket. I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's not sepsis. <laughs> I see I'm bleeding. I'll take care of it when I get home. My wife will take care of it. <laughs> It's just a flesh wound, guy. Um, 
So then she eventually revealed her secret to her shipmates and was granted an honorable discharge and eventually a pension for serving in the Royal Marines. Well, she deserves it, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And then she sold her story to a publisher. She appeared on stage in uniform to tell her story, and she opened a pub called The Female Warrior. Oh, that's awesome. Isn't that great? I love the idea of her, like, her husband leaves her. She has this horrible tragedy, and she's just like, I'm going to go sail around the world as a soldier and then open a pub. It's. I think it's funny, and both the stories that we've talked about, they've had some really bad luck but none of it's because they were like none of them were caught as a woman and then tortured or hurt or any like if anything the other girl would have saved herself some trouble if she had said she was a woman and this person maybe wouldn't have saved themselves some trouble but when they found out she was a woman it didn't hurt her at all and I love that aspect although the Mm -hmm. fact that they even felt the need to disguise themselves says other things about society but um I love that like and neither of these stories is when it was revealed that they were a woman was that a problem right right um say okay so the same is with this next story too so this is the story of Frances clayton okay so she served in the civil war and this is amazing so i guess there's they they estimate that there were 150 to 400 soldiers who were women in the civil war who disguised themselves as men to fight so do you think that happened because people felt so strongly about the civil war like you know they were like i need to go and do something or do you think in a lot of cases, it was more of a, I have no options unless I pretend to be a man, and then if I'm a man, I'm going to war. Well, they talk about that. So they said some women enlisted because they had no means to support themselves after their husbands left to go to war. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were enticed by the idea of being paid and, you know, money means freedom for a woman, right? Yeah, definitely. And, and independence. Not, I mean... The, the flip side of that is you still have to go off and fight in a war, which is really, really awful. You can have your freedom if you... I feel like being a soldier, even yeah. if you're... Like, it's kind of a subservient yeah, profession. Yeah, I mean, you still have to follow orders, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and, and they said, yeah, some were just really patriotic and they wanted to serve their country. So Frances Clayton um, took the name Jack Williams to enlist in the Union Army, and she did it because her husband, Elmer enlisted and she didn't want to leave him so she enlisted with her husband and she so she she talked about how she practiced walking talking and chewing like a man that's fair and it says that she fought in 17 battles and she served in both cavalry and and artillery regiments and she was wounded three times and taken prisoner once which must have been terrifying yeah um, this is sad. So her husband was killed during the Battle of the Stones River in December 31st, 1862. Clayton continued to fight after watching her husband die. Um, mm. And then and then eventually she um, revealed her gender to her commanding officer, and she was also granted honorable discharge. Okay. Brave lady. Yeah. I can't admit, as much as I love stories where people disguise themselves as men women but i can't imagine going to war that's oh, like no. the other even like now openly as a woman yeah. i like i have so much respect for soldiers but i don't think i could ever do it same here and then on top of that hiding your identity and being afraid like all the extra dangers oh, and, and then being taken captive by the confederacy yeah. no thank you i'll skip that part Thanks. um okay so the last one was dorothy lawrence she was an english reporter who posed as a man to become a soldier in world war one um and her goal was she wanted to be a journalist. 
So <laughs> she had um, a few articles published early on in her career, and then when war when the war began, she wrote to a number of newspapers because she wanted to report the war and um, essentially be employed as a war correspondent. Mm-hmm. And they all said no. Because she was a woman? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So she decided to just enter the war zone via the French sector as a freelance war correspondent and, and disguised herself as a man. She was 18 years old. Wow. So she befriended two British Army soldiers and persuaded them to smuggle her a uniform. <laughs> and they did it piece by piece with their washing. So they couldn't just give her a whole uniform. So they were like... One time they admit and they'd be like, here's, here's your pants. All right, here's your shirt. Here's your sock. Um, and so she finally had a full uniform. I'm just imagining her with like three quarters of a uniform just waiting for that last <laughs> yeah. delivery. I need a sock. Yeah. I'm one sock short. She referred to them as her khaki accomplices because the uniforms were really khaki. Um, so she flattened her figure with a homemade corset. Um, she used sacks and cotton wool to make her, her shoulders more broad. And then she cut her hair in a short military style. And then she she actually, like, dragged a razor across her cheeks to give herself, like, um, to make it look like she had a shaving rash. And then she asked her friends to teach her how to drill and how to march so she'd fit in. That's so fun. It's, like, funny the things you don't think about learning in order to... To assume a disguise. A convincing disguise. And then you think about, like, in in the story where we're reading she didn't even have time or like she had you know was like okay now I'm gonna pretend to be a boy because it's my only chance but I wonder how you would need some training and practice and all of that to pull it off Mm -hmm. um okay so then she she worked alongside a man named Tom Dunn who was a former coal miner and she essentially worked in the trenches with him and they shared rations and they laid mines in no man's land under fire and um after about 10 days um she got ill and so she had to turn herself in because she didn't want her friends to get in trouble like she was really concerned about the people who helped her getting in trouble for disguising her Mm -hmm. so she revealed her gender and this one does not have a happy ending oh no and this is the most recent one i know she was taken prisoner when she revealed her gender and was interrogated as a spy interesting and then was declared a prisoner of war um, so was that just because she was a woman or was it because she lied about her identity? Both, I think. So essentially the army was really embarrassed that a woman had breached their security. Okay. And then they were afraid that her story would inspire more women to take on the role of soldiers during the war. So they um, ordered her to remain in France and she was made to swear not to write about her experiences. And they forced her to sign an affidavit um, saying she wouldn't talk about her experiences or she would um, be sent to jail. Wow. So, which is awful because she enlisted because she wanted to be a war correspondent and write about this from a journalist's perspective. And they essentially put a gag order on her and were like, you cannot talk about this because it's embarrassing that we let someone sneak in. I mean, it makes them look bad. Talk about, like, male ego issues or whatever. <laughs> Ugh, tell me about it. Oh, my goodness. That's exactly what it is. Um, so then eventually she, in 1919, she did eventually publish her autobiography, but it was heavily censored and it wasn't received well. And then this is awful. So I guess after she revealed that she was a woman, she was taken briefly to a convent and 
she told uh, one of her doctors that she had been raped by um, the guardian at the church. Mm. And their response was to commit her to a mental hospital. Of course it was. Yeah. So she, they didn't believe her for confessing this horrible thing that happened to her. She was deemed insane and, was, and spent the rest of her life in a mental hospital. And then she was buried in an unmarked grave or a pauper's grave in Southgate Cemetery. Um, and you can't see this site of her plot today. It's, it's like, not clear where she was buried. So that one does not have a happy ending. Yeah, Marissa, um, I thought you were doing so well sorry. with no bummers, and then you just had to end on that note. Huh? It's me, it's me. I had to get something terrible and dark and disturbing. <laughs> then I know you're, like, feeling okay and all of that, at least, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still myself. Wow, that's that sucks. I know, so that was, like, not a great ending, but... I mean, let's let's just think about Hannah Snell and, and her and her pub instead. Well, the interesting thing that I was thinking about, too, while you were telling this story is um, just the number of women who use male or gender neutral pen names to help them oh, sell yeah. books. J.K. And, Rowling. Yeah, I was going to say even today. Um, so that's kind of interesting. It's something that still happens today. Although, um, have you ever read, did you read The Power? I didn't, but I'm, it's... In my book. Was I telling you about this? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. I just finished it and it was really good and and they play on that a little bit. It's by Naomi Alderman and it's about um, women who get this superpower almost where they can deliver electric shocks and it completely upsets the gender dynamic of the entire world. And um, it's interesting how you see in, in the beginning of the book power has shifted from men to women and they ha- they talk about that about like people men now using women's names to get things published and things like that i like that idea yeah I'll it's a good book i recommend it yeah cool so that was my research well i was gonna say great job now i'm gonna say you know b plus for the way you ended it no, i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> i know i should have ended with Hannah snow <laughs> No, it was good. It was oh, good. Well. It's interesting. I mean, it's just, it's it's crazy to think, I mean, even with the state of the gender stuff in the world today, like I've never been in a situation where I really feel like, you know, in order to accomplish something, I would need to pretend to be a man. Like I could see advantages to it in certain situations mm. maybe, but it's interesting to like think about, especially the further back we go, how limited options were and how like it was sort of, it made sense that so many people did it. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. just to get anything accomplished. Yeah, or to have any independence at all. Or to be treated with any kind of respect. Yeah. Or to have people listen to your opinions. I mean, we could go on and on and on. <laughs> How much time do you guys have? <laughs> um, okay, so do we want to talk about the next book? Yes. Okay. Did you, oh, first of all, did you have a, a favorite scene? Because we didn't talk about that yet. Oh, um, I think it would probably be something in the tea house. I think mm. that. That's one of my favorite scenes. What about you? I want to see the granary fire and that whole thing play out with Amaya and Kenshin. That would be good too. What did you think about Mariko beating that guy to a pulp? (laughs) Oh my god, that's right. I was kind of expecting that to have more of a like lasting impact on her or come up again. Same here. Because that's the first... Well, I mean, she does kill a man in the beginning. Yeah, but Um, that man deserved it more. But I guess you're right. I mean, I feel like if she was... Because she kind of was like... I. At the beginning, like, she wasn't proud of killing, but she didn't have any regret because he... She had to. Had, yeah. No, and I'm, I'm curious if, like, we'll see her brother coming to terms with her, who her she disguising is herself and who she is now. Yeah. Because yeah. she's not who he thought she was, and she's changed so much, and... 
Also, I didn't realize they were twins until like one of the last few chapters. I knew they were siblings, but I didn't realize they were twins. That's the other thing. It's like, I guess they're 17. Yeah. Which is amazing to me that like, I mean, apart from the fact that she's being married at 17 and then her twin brother is already this very celebrated samurai. That was surprising to me. I didn't know that men became samurais so young. Yeah, I agree. Uh, At 17, I couldn't have done any of this stuff. At at 27, I couldn't have done any of this stuff, probably. (laughs) I'm in my 30s, and I'm still like, no, thank you. Okay, but the next book, it's the end of the series because it's a duology. It's called Mm -hmm. Smoke in the Sun. And we're going to read up to the chapter More Than Love. Yep. Do you want me to read the the cover or the back? Oh, yes, please do. Or is it your turn? I don't even know whose turn it is. No, you you go ahead. For weeks, 17-year-old Mariko pretended to be a boy to infiltrate the notorious Black Klan and bring her would-be murderer to justice. She didn't expect to find a place for herself among the group of fighters, a life of usefulness, and she certainly didn't expect to fall in love. Now she heads to the Imperial Castle to resume a life she never wanted to save the boy she loves. Okami has been captured and his execution is a certainty. Mariko will do what she must to ensure his survival, even marry the sovereign's brother, saying goodbye to a life with Okami forever. As Mariko settles into her days at court, making both friends and enemies, and attempting his rescue at night, the secrets of the royal court begin to unravel as competing agendas collide. One arrow sets into motion a series of deadly events even the most powerful magic cannot contain. Mariko and Okami risk everything to right past wrongs and restore the honor of a kingdom thrown into chaos by a sudden war, hoping against hope that when the dust settles, they will find a way to be together. Hmm. Okay. Curious who shoots this arrow. And there's more talk about this powerful magic, but maybe it'll make more sense in the second book. I hope so. I hope it's like integrated a little bit better or we learn more about it. Yeah. Yeah. Right now we don't really get it. It's like confusing. Is it bad that I, like, don't care about the love story? No. I mean, I think that... Like, I'm not uh, I'm not super into, like, her and Okami. I'm more interested in her just, like, being a fierce warrior and, like, learning to fight. No, I agree. I mean, I'm interested in both of them as characters because I think I want to see her growth and I'm, like, curious about his background more. But mm-hmm. I'm not, like... I'm not dying for a love story here. Yeah. 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 No, I, I don't disagree. Okay. Well, it's, it's my turn to tell a joke this week. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, it's going to be so hard to follow up your father's. <laughs> well, you're not, you're not a professional dad yet, so. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I still have time. Okay. <laughs> what do you call a man lying in front of a door? Um, sleepy. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good one. I, I thought so. okay everyone um thank you so much for listening if you want to get in touch you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com we are also on instagram and facebook and we'd love 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 you to message us bye bookworms go get a library card M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. 
For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.